Welcome to the podcast of the Center for Asian American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary, a space for ongoing dialogue among Asian American scholars, ministry leaders, and activists. Hi, everyone. My name is Dr. David Chow. I direct the Center for Asian American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary. And it's um, my privilege to introduce Roy Kim for our workshop titled Ministering to Victims of Infidelity. Roy Kim is a former pastor and now a certified sex addiction therapist. He has a private practice in Southern California, where his clinical focus is treating sexual addiction and infidelity trauma, primarily through group therapy. His hope is that increasingly more churches in this generation will become a refuge and spiritual hospital for men and women with addictions and trauma. Roy loves Star Wars, so do I. Enjoys podcasting. He's a proud stepdad and has been happily remarried to Jen for four years. Please welcome Roy. Thanks so much, David. Um, yeah, everyone, I'm so glad that you could um, join uh, this very niche topic. Um, uh, I'm sure that uh, you all have your own uh, personal reasons um, for wanting to learn more about this topic or to reinforce what you already know. Um, I know that there's a lot of material to cover um, with such a uh, gigantic topic, so um, I'm going to do my best to make it as streamlined as possible, uh, to make it as understandable as possible. So let me start first by saying um, something personal to me and why this particular issue matters to me. So uh, I am a victim of infidelity and um I remember when I um, discovered the extent of the betrayal, um, my body physically gave out. Um, I'm not a very heavy guy. I'm um, uh, in fact, very, very light. And um, so it doesn't take much to stay standing. But um, when I discovered the trauma um, or when I discovered what had happened, uh, with my uh, then wife's betrayal, my knees gave out and I just fell to the floor and I couldn't stand. And it was an involuntary response. Um, and that is um, just the beginning. Um, the, um, the kind of darkness and terror that a person goes through once they realize that their significant other has been unfaithful and has been deceiving them is a very unique type of trauma that um, thankfully some people, maybe, maybe many people can recover from, um, but also unfortunately some people don't recover from uh, for various reasons. And many of these people <clears throat> might have already been through the doors of your church. Uh, many of them uh, may come into the doors of your church. And I remember uh, the types of people and the types of responses that I received uh, when they discovered what had happened to me. Um, I kind of categorized them as safe and healthy versus very unsafe and get the heck away from me kind of responses that I had internally and also verbally uh, when they shared some things with me. And my 
hope is that um, through some of the things that I share and maybe some of the additional resources that you um, digest uh, when I give them to you later, that you will be the type who gives congregants um, the kind of uh, internal, internal response of, I can't wait to speak to this pastor again. I can't wait to get more encouragement and more care from this pastor again, rather than please get the heck away from me. So uh, this is a very personal issue for me. And when I do speak with um, clients who have also been betrayed, um, our experiences tend to line up. Uh, we tend to speak each other's language. Um, we realize that um, there are many shared interpretations and many shared experiences and many shared ways of um, recovery that we have experienced. So I'm happy to um, share these things with, with you all. So let's begin with um, what some of the victims, uh, my clients, are telling me. I'll just limit the talk to these two uh, main ideas. My pastor doesn't get it. And my pastor doesn't care. Um, sometimes it's not a pastor, sometimes it's an elder, sometimes it's a deacon, sometimes it's a, you know, uh, someone that they would think would provide them um, very deep care at the church, but then they are um, sorely disappointed. So these, if I were to clump them, it would just be these two. My pastor doesn't get it and my pastor doesn't care. And so what happens is when a congregant uh, experiences these types of interpretations and conclusions for uh, a sustained amount of time, it results in feeling more traumatized, first by the betrayal and all the different things related to the betrayal, and now by the expectation that certain people would give them care and understanding. So it's like a double trauma. They feel intense shame. Uh, they feel like maybe something's wrong with them. Um, and then a lot of times they do end up leaving that particular church um, because it's no longer tenable um, to stay at a place where they feel like I'm just not understood here. Uh, and tragically, sometimes it does lead to apostasy because their, their receiving of the, um, the responses from their pastors kind of like a projection unto God, you know, um, that if, if this person speaks the word of God and maybe, you know, in a way speaks for God, then how they're being treated by this pastor is a reflection of how God would treat them. And so they unfortunately do um, apostatize sometimes. Um, so this is a big deal. Um, <clears throat> so Let's start with the idea of my pastor doesn't get it. What this usually means is that the pastor's understanding of what they are going through is way too small, okay? Um, it's not that the pastor is not smart. It's not that the, yeah, the pastor is not um, a good person. It's that their understanding of the trauma is way too small. So what level of trauma are we talking about here? Let's start with a very um, basic cluster of events that can produce um, a lot of pain, okay? 
breaking your leg during a soccer game. Um, I remember when I was in high school on the JV team, uh, I wasn't in the game, I was on the bench, uh, but I saw a fellow uh, player uh, basically kick um, or, or they swing for the ball, you know, with their leg, but then instead of hitting the ball, it would, it, it locked um, shins with another opposing player. And then sorry to be graphic, but yeah, it just snapped in half. And, you know, for me as a bystander, watching that was traumatic for me, but you can imagine what that's like for the player whose leg got shattered during a soccer game. This is just awful. Um, your car getting broken into, or maybe your car getting stolen, right? Now, what do I do? How do I get home? You know, I need to get a new car. I need to do all this, you know, hassle stuff. So uh, really painful things here. Or maybe um, those of you who are academics, you spent weeks and weeks, maybe months of writing something and research, research, researching something. And you thought that you had it backed up, but it wasn't backed up. And now you can't go back. You, there's, you can't reclaim it. Like um, that is extremely uh, painful and horrible. And I think anybody would empathize like, oh, bro, I cannot believe that happened to you. Or like, oh my gosh, like, I'm so sorry, right? Um, this would be kind of a fundamental category or tier, if you will, of pain that, you know, we can relate to, you know, injuries and th theft and uh, losing things, okay? But I would say that there is a tier that is greater than this. If you look at the, the one above, so the, the, the tier that I mentioned is now on the bottom. It, it shifted down, down the, uh, the pyramid, if you will. And then the upper tier is, I would say, worse than what I just explained. Uh, getting robbed at gunpoint, like terrifying, right? Um, I, I, I just uh, um, published a, a podcast episode about friendship and uh, we, you know, we were talking about how um, it's traumatic when uh, a person doesn't select you as their bridesmaid. Like this is, some people might downplay it, but there are people who say, no, the friendship is now over. Uh, and that is a really huge loss for some people. Um, your house burning down, right? This is just to see your house. Yes, it's insured and everything, but still like this, this house that you love going up in flames, like this is really, really hard to, uh, to deal with. Um, maybe your parent uh, receiving a diagnosis of something that's terminal. Um, there's no cure for it. So, you know, receiving a diagnosis of Alzheimer's is just horrible. And so as someone shares this with you, you're like, my goodness, I'm so, so sorry. And you, you can feel it in your gut, like how awful this is. When I speak to people who have been victims of infidelity, and I would go through these types of um, pain points in life, they would say, no, it's worse than this. It's worse than that bottom tier, and it's worse than this tier that I just mentioned. 
I will show you the tier that they say it's kind of on par with. Um, now this is apples and oranges. And so nothing quite is the same pain as the ones that I'm gonna mention next, which also means nothing quite matches the pain of being a victim of infidelity. But I'll tell you the level of pain that it is. The death of a loved one by murder or drunk driving or discovering that your parents are not your bio parents. Now, this is substantial because you think, no, nothing could be as bad as this, but it is. In the experience of the victim of infidelity, it is on par with this, namely because it's something that you would never ever expect to happen. This is like not even on your radar. Um, we, we spend money for home insurance because we think that there's a chance that it might get flooded or it might burn. Uh, terminal illnesses are a part of our life and we kind of expect people to have these horrible diagnoses. Uh, maybe ourselves, we will get a horrible diagnosis one day. Uh, we expect to have broken limbs. We expect theft. Um, but we don't expect someone in our family to be murdered. We don't expect one day driving to the market and getting hit by a drunk driver and dying. And when a person understands or not understand when the person discovers that their spouse has been unfaithful and they have been deceitful about it and they've been gaslighting you in the process your knees buckle and you fall to the floor um everything that you think about life no longer feels true anymore that is the extent of the trauma so I'd like for you to think about how you would respond to a church member who has experienced either the death of a loved one by murder or their sibling or their child died in a car accident because of drunk drivers or someone saying, my parents are not my bio parents. Think about how you would respond to that. It's not just, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. It's maybe you collapse on the floor with them. And so for a victim of infidelity, any weaker response can be experienced as you don't get it. So I just, encourage you to sit with this for a while. Um, if you don't get it, I don't blame you. Um, because this, this is not the kind of thing that we're really taught much about. Um, maybe we watch it on TV shows and we become desensitized to it. But when it actually happens to you, it's something else. It's a, it's a level that you've never, ever experienced before. So how you 
empathize with the person really does matter. And you don't want to find yourself being someone who um, the person says, wow, you really minimize what I'm going through. Um, I really hope that that's um, something that we can all kind of meditate more on and think about how do I actually wrap my head more about, about this particular type of trauma that people go through. What about my pastor doesn't care? My pastor doesn't care. I personally believe that you do care, even if your response to the person is not the empathy that they're looking for. Um, I, I don't think for me, it's a matter of you not caring, uh, nor do I think that's the relevant question here. I believe that the question is, what do we do in general that conveys to the victim that we don't care? What is the um, what is the thing that we are doing that they are interpreting and they are perceiving as us not caring? Because that's what really matters for them is the, the, the felt experience of their pastor or their elder or their deacon or ministry leader really, really caring for them. <clears throat> okay, so here are some of the things, and again, this is kind of a short list, uh, it's not exhaustive, but these are some of the things that convey that we don't care. Avoiding the victim because of discomfort or shame. Um, when I was going through my um, trauma, um, the head pastor did not reach out to me once. Not once. And um, and he knew about it um, because <laughs> word spreads in a church. Um, even if he were clumsy, even if he were saying to me, I have no words, but I could see through his eyes or I could see through the tremor in his voice that he understood the magnitude of what I was going through. That would be enough for me. I wouldn't need anything eloquent. Just, just that he gets it. But he avoided. And uh, I have my theories as to why. Um, you know, because my uh, my betrayal occurred in my church, and the you know the affair partner. You know, his parents were prominent in the church and, um, you know, my ex-wife, you know, her parents were longstanding members of the church. And so a lot of shame all around. And so what does the pastor do to, you know, offer any types of words of wisdom? But again, for the victim of infidelity, we're not looking for words of wisdom. We're just looking for, do you care? So I know that it might be our tendency, since most of us in this uh, conference uh, are of Asian descent, and shame is a pretty prominent way um, with which we um, make decisions and the way that we react to things. But it's also killing the church. You know, 
the, the more that we do not deal with our own shame, the more that we really hurt members in the church. So um, try not to avoid the victim, but rather go clumsily, maybe even speaking less and just showing with your eyes and showing with your tremors, um, with your tears that you care. I would also say um, something that conveys that we don't care is um, overt or subtle pressure to forgive. Sometimes a pastor might think um, the greatest way to honor God in this situation is for you to forgive the offender. And we'd say, God forgave us, so we should forgive others. Or maybe, you know, we might say that your, uh, your spouse just made a really bad mistake. Just forgive them. Or maybe if the, the victim of infidelity is someone uh, who has maybe a ministry role in the church, and they are seen as somewhat of a, a role model for the church, then the pastor might say, you know, you are a deacon, you are an elder, you are an associate pastor. Set an example for others of grace. You know, this is the way to honor the Lord. You can kind of see how there can be, you know, ways of thinking through this that says, yeah, I guess they have a point. And, um, you know, maybe I do need to, you know, quickly forgive this so that I can please the Lord. The ones that I've spoken to who uh, kind of heard these types of messages from their pastors and maybe they complied, they almost always tell me, I felt so like, I felt so duplicitous. I felt like I betrayed myself. I felt like I was not true to myself. I felt like I did it to please the pastor, really, to, you know, to be a quote, good Christian. But um, for many of them, it was just words. They didn't forgive, but they had to pretend like they were forgiving. And it, it caused another internal chasm for them. I don't think that's fair. Um, I think if uh, when I sensed that people were um, telling me to forgive uh, during, during my trauma, all I wanted to do was shut down. All I wanted to do was stay away from people like that because it didn't feel right. Um, it felt like what they wanted was not something that was related to me, but what they wanted was like this ideal to be achieved. And maybe I was the, uh, the sacrificial lamb to get there. So um, this type of pressure even like if you're not overtly saying it, but you, you can kind of tell when a person is trying to subtly pressure them to forgive, this conveys to the person that you don't care about what they are going through. So um, that's another thing to keep in mind. And then lastly, at least just for today's talk um, in, in this category, overt or subtle pressure to stay in the marriage. Pastors might cite Hosea, 
Look at how many times Gomer uh, betrayed the marriage, and yet Hosea stayed with Gomer and loved Gomer. So go and do likewise. Um, or they would cite, God hates divorce. Or they would say, think about the kids. Stay in the marriage for the kids. Or if, you know, let's say the, the infidelity was... Um, Maybe it was the elder, or it was a deacon who was the infidel, uh, or it was the spouse of the elder or the deacon that was the infidel. Uh, and if we don't repair this quickly, this is going to cause a big rift in our church. It's going to be scandalous. Um, this is not good for our church. So there's going to be overt or subtle pressure to stay in the marriage. Um and I feel for the pastors, you know, who have this kind of anxiety about this kind of stuff happening uh, or these sorts of outcomes happening. But again, this bypasses what the victim of infidelity is going through. Um, they're already racking their brains and their souls. What do I do about this marriage? They're already so exhausted from going through all of this that now to have someone uh, pressure them overtly or subtly feels like I've already had everything taken away from me and now you're taking away my choice. So it's, it's harm upon harm. Not to say that there are not good discussions to be had about whether we stay in the marriage or not, but there needs to be a letting go of control that pastors must deal with, a respecting of the person's decision based upon what the person is going through. Because if you go back to the red box, the death of a loved one through murder or drunk driving or realizing that your parents are not your Bible parents, we would not be saying these same things to that person. Um, there'd be a very different posture that we would have. But this is the level of trauma that people experience. So I hope that you can keep that in mind um, whenever you say or don't say um, anything, because this is a very, very sensitive and delicate matter. So those are some ways that people, uh, ministry leaders and pastors convey that they don't care. So how do we show that we care? And again, this is not an exhaustive list, but just for the sake of time, I wanna show you some of these things for you to start thinking about. Um, remember that this, this type of trauma belongs in the worst tier of trauma. So that might be your emotional guide. You know, it might, it might set the tone for yourself as you think about everything being filtered through that red box. This is the worst tier of trauma. This needs a lot of time to heal. I'm talking years. Years of healing. You can start to ask about basic things. Um, are they showing signs of self-harm? 
There are people, actually many people, who are victims of infidelity, and they think, not only is my world over, but I'm going to accelerate the process. And I can't take this. I can't take this shame. And I can't take the fact that um, everything that I held sacred is now gone. So they may even have thoughts about self-harm. So you might want to check in to see. And, you know, sometimes we shy away from asking about suicidality uh, because, oh, what if like we're planting ideas? That's usually not the case. When you actually put it onto the table and look at it um, plainly, uh, they're actually able to tell you, um, no, it's not to that extent. It's I may, be, I may have fleeting thoughts of it, but I, I'm not making any plans to harm myself. But by you asking a question, you are conveying to them that you get how awful this is. Okay, so asking about their safety, asking about basic functioning. Are you eating? Are you sleeping? Um, I've had several clients um, who um, they would forget about their daily routines. So they'd forget to wash their face. They'd forget to brush their teeth. They've got no will to brush their teeth. Um, they're not paying their bills, not because they don't have money, uh, but you know they don't. Maybe they didn't have a uh, automatic payment scheduled in their online, you know, banking. Uh, but they're the ones who maybe still write checks, and they just lose sight. Sometimes they, if they have young kids, they forget to prepare their lunch for that day. Mom, where's my lunch? Oh, I'm sorry, honey. I, 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 I completely forgot. Like, they're in a different world. Like, they can't function. Um, when I was going through my trauma, um, I was still in grad school. And, you know, there's a certain routine. You know, you go to class at a certain time and there are assignments to complete. There are things to study for. For a decent season, I couldn't. I couldn't complete my assignments. Um, I couldn't think properly. I couldn't sleep. I had flashbacks. Um, all I really could do was just uh, drink heavily and hope, just kind of hope that the that the 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 inebriation would make the day go by faster because it's just intolerable. Um, and you know, if you if you drink enough, you start getting like stomach problems and liver problems, and um, your appetite gets shot. It's it's just really, really horrible. So you might want to check in and just ask them, like, are you are you functioning okay? You know, do you maybe need some support in that area? Do you do you need some people to uh, maybe provide some meals for you? Um, you know, sometimes 
you have such caring people when people have uh, a baby, when they deliver a baby and you get a meal train going, because we all know that how difficult it is to be on your feet and to be doing the cooking for families and things like that when you just had a baby. I would say at least have that mindset for someone who has been victimized by infidelity because chances are um, they're not able to cook either or if they are, they're doing it as a zombie. They're just completely dissociating and doing it by muscle memory. Um, but it is not a way to live and they, they probably need a lot of support. Um, I would say, I would suggest um, assigning some people within your church who quote unquote, get it, people who have been um, victimized themselves um, to provide daily support for them. Um, and if you do cho choose some people, um, I wouldn't just choose the people who have been victimized by infidelity and stayed in the marriage. I would also choose people who have been victimized by infidelity and who did not stay in the marriage. Maybe both. Okay. Because again, if you just choose one type, um, that's another subtle form of pressure saying, see, these people stayed in marriage. You can too. Okay. That's not helpful for them. Um, being objective and being neutral and just wanting to, provide for their daily need is what they need at this time. So uh, if, if you can have people in your church who, um, who can provide that kind of support for them, that's great. What if your church doesn't have people who have been victimized by infidelity and uh, who are willing to provide support? Well, there are many therapists out there, um, especially those in the APSATS community, um, as you'll see in the next bullet point. Um, who have support groups for people who have been victimized by infidelity. And um, they, they speak the same language. They're, they're people who can um, definitely aren't going to be pressuring you to divorce or not divorce or forgive or not forgive, but just saying, how are you doing today? Like, what can I do to support you today? What can I do to validate what your pain is today? That's all that you're doing day in, day out, because that's what a person needs. Um, so yes, people who get it um, is very, very important to, you know, uh, to rally around um, these victims. I would say if you can, if you can help it, you know, uh, try to divert some funds from your, um, from your offering. Uh, for professional support, um, if the person is willing to get some professional support. Um, so these are two links that you can go to uh, where you can find a directory of people who have been trained in betrayal trauma, the, either the APSATS community or the, the ITAP community. Um, I'd say be a learner and not a teacher. Um, just just uh, ask questions not leading questions, but ask questions like, what are you experiencing? And how can I help you? Tell me what you are going through. Uh, do not be the person who instructs them what to do uh, at a time like this when you, you possibly don't know what they're going through. 
Um, give choices to them. Empower them to make choices. Uh, you might want to see if the victim can reside somewhere separately for a while. You might be afraid of that, though, because you're thinking, oh, no, what if they get to use of this and this, you know, this leads to divorce? Again, that's your anxiety about divorce happening. Um, but really, um, some people get triggered and re-triggered and re-triggered by being under the same roof as a person who has betrayed them. And so um, maybe uh, there could be some avenue for them to reside somewhere else separately to get their bearings again. Um, and if you really must bring up the forgiveness topic, I'd say, why don't you bring it up a year or two later after the fact? Not anytime uh, sooner than that. Um, and I would also suggest, again, this is not forcing them, but just saying, you know, would you consider six months of non-decision about the, the relationship? Um, and it's just a way for them to get a little bit more equilibrium because, you know, this trauma is so fresh and, you know, it's going to take a good amount of time for not only for their trauma to be addressed, but also for them to observe what is, what is their spouse doing to make amends, to repair, um, or is the spouse getting their own support and their own counseling and that kind of thing. And after the six months, if this victim does decide to divorce afterwards, again, this is their choice, not yours. I would even say that you offer to go to the courthouse with them. Not that you force yourself to do that or you know, say, I'm going to go, but say, would you like me to go with you? Um, this is you saying to them, your decision is your decision, and I just care for your well-being and no strings attached. And I'm still going to journey with you. Maybe I'll still journey with the uh, with the um, unfaithful partner as well. Uh, doesn't need to be mutually exclusive, but um, I'm going to tangibly offer my support to you uh, by, you know, going uh, with going with you to the courthouse. If you need me to sit next to you as a fill, as you fill out the divorce papers, I'll do that with you. You can assign some people to do that with them so they don't have to go through that alone. Any sort of ways that you can give support to them is uh, something that's much, much um, appreciated by the victim. God may hate divorce, but he hates infidelity more. That's my stance. Um, these are not mutually exclusive. Um, he can hate both, but in my opinion, I think he hates infidelity even more than he hates divorce. And this may be a controversial um, phrase for you, and you know I can respect that. But um, I would say that when you have this stance, um, this mindset when you are ministering to people who have been uh, victimized by infidelity, they will realize, oh, you get it. And that is something um, very healing for them. Um, and I'm going to give you a few more resources to take a look at. Three of them are podcasts. Um, and for the first two podcasts, these are like you know, specific episodes that you can listen to that could be um, nice for you to um, just listen, 
uh, a couple times through. So you kind of get the gist of what they're saying. Um, there's a workbook uh, called F Facing Heartbreak that is um, good for the, um, the victim to go through. And, you know, if you want to get a copy for yourself, just to kind of look through it and, you know, figure out like, what are the questions being asked here? Um, what are the things that, are, that a victim goes through? Um, this is just a, a way for you to get your mind more oriented. Um, so this could be a great resource for you to have on hand as well. We here at the Center for Asian American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary invite you to join in the ongoing dialogue on Asian American faith, identity, social engagement, and ministry through our newsletter, blog, and upcoming conferences at ltiaa.com.